You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. I've titled my sermon today, The End of the Story. The End of the Story. And I'm going to open in prayer, but I'll give you my goal before I start. I would like to efficiently and theologically extract a couple rocks from your backpack and replace them with the love and light and joy of Jesus Christ. And and if God is glorified, that is going to happen, I promise you. So Lord, it's exactly in that trajectory that I stand before my dear friends today. We'd like to hear from you, not from me, Lord. In fact, move me out of the way. We want to hear from you. So, Lord, we offer this up in the glorious name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as you guys know, I'm a pastor, and part of the nature of that is counseling and discipling a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of men. And each man that I meet with, they have, a, they have this story containing the different circumstances in their life that have presently gotten them to where they are now. A lot, I mean, really varied, varied circumstances. I've, I've heard a lot of things, but God is glorified. Let, let me say this, or let me ask you this. Having that in your mind, I'm sure you guys have had the same experience. What dictates if a story is good or bad? A life story is happy or sad? What makes it like that? What do we look at? Let me run this by you. I know of a man who was so hated by his family. I mean, absolutely despised. He, uh, he, it, was, it was so much so that he would... Uh, you know, he, he would try to stand up for himself, but it just wasn't working at all. It got to the point where they would ridicule him day and night, day and night. It met this head, and they beat him. They absolutely beat him within an inch of his life. Not only that, but they kind of locked him away, held him captive, but only until they figured out that they could sell him to uh, human traffickers to make money. Human traffickers transported him to a foreign country where he was then thrown in jail on faulty charges. He was forgotten by man and seemingly by God. Now, let me ask you, what kind of a story is this? I think if we're honest, you'd say, well, that's kind of a sad tragedy. That's a story of injustice. That's not right. But what if I told you that that story is from the book of Genesis and the man is Joseph? And before his story ends, before Joseph's story ends, he's released from prison and given a position of great power, great power. In fact, he becomes the second most powerful man in the world behind Pharaoh. He then saves his country, Egypt, from certain famine He also saves his family that used to hate him from starvation. He's then reconciled to his family, and his family greatly honors him, greatly honors him. Now, let me ask you, what kind of story is that? What would you say? I think it's no longer a story of tragedy or unjustness. I think it's a story of of God and good triumphing over evil. It's a story of God's grace and God's sovereignty. 
See, you can't judge a story by its beginning or middle. A story must be judged by how it ends. The nature of our story is determined by our end. That's our life story. It is determined by our end. We cannot judge the quality of our life by our current situation. I want to say that again. Some of you need to hear this. You cannot judge the quality of your life by your current situation or circumstance. However, let me say this. It sounds contradictory, but it's not. It's not as if we can't tell what kind of story we're in. Here's the wonderful thing. If you are called by the Lord Jesus Christ and you know God and you've, you've received his salvation, you know how the story ends. You know how the story ends. It ends in victory. It ends in restoration. It ends in triumph, blessing, joy, and glory. That makes your story a good one. I'm going to say it again. That makes your story a very good one. So when you look at your life, don't look at it through what's going on now. Look at it through the lens of the end. Look at it through the lens of the end. I'll tell you, every problem, every sorrow, every defeat, every failure, it's small part of this triumphant glory that will signify who you are and the end. See, when we do this, our view changes. It physically changes from a bad story or feeling sorry for ourselves to one of, uh, of gratitude for the circumstance, actually. It changes things. I don't know how that's done, but it changes things. What you see, you look at. Look at it through the end. Now, what I'd like to do, and typically what I always do, I want to prove what I'm saying through example and promises from the Word of God. And I want to show you how we can apply the Word of God to your current situation. So we're going to go to a few places, and uh, I pray my Bible doesn't blow all over the place. But I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians 2.14. 2 Corinthians 2.14. And I'm going to go to some different places today. You don't have to follow me. I'll read it for you. And if it's hard to navigate the Bible in the wind, don't worry. I'll read it for you. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says exactly this. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. And through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Yes. For thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession procession. See, Paul is giving us this very rich and detailed description of what is happening if you're a follower of Christ. And see, Paul is describing the adequacy of God and His grace for every situation that you're in. Every. Notice it says always there. Every situation, no matter how destructive, no matter how threatening, we got to pay attention Paul says, always, who always leads us, who always leads us. It's not sometimes, it's always leads us. And I think it's even, it's more fascinating to understand the imagery. Uh, obviously, it was written in Greek, but the imagery that's portraying is of this victorious Roman general leading his soldiers and those they've taken captive through this parade or procession 
through the middle of the city. It's, it's a festival type, type scenario. That's what Paul's portraying. And while the people are on the side of the roads applauding and watching, there's this sweet smell of incense that they put on the sides of the road. They'd light them up. This sweet smell of incense as this Roman general led this procession. And so it is with us Christians. Did you know we were called to spiritual warfare? Every day, we are called to spiritual warfare. We are led triumphantly by God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's through Him that everywhere is spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Think about that. So even when we're going through difficult times in our life, God is spreading this wonderful fragrance as we go through life as Christians. We have Christ in us. No matter what the trial, the fragrance will be spread if we have our eyes on the end and where we're going. Let me go here. I think it's another great example. I'm going to pop over to Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. I think it's tremendously instructive. It says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Again, the, you got to get the imagery here because it really speaks to us. This imagery that the writer of Hebrew uses is this, uh, this athletic contest in this great amphitheater. And the witnesses he talks about are the heroes of the faith back in chapter 11. You're very familiar with that. Men like Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. The list goes on. But that's kind of the spectators, if you will. But here it is. These witnesses are not actually spectators watching us, you know, as we go through life. But they are examples for us to look at. These examples are for us. It's kind of a, rever a reverse thing. They are actually, I think, the best example of what a life lived in faith to God looks like. And, you know, I, I, I think that we can all, we all have examples that we can think of that are good in life. But when we look at, we look at these examples, the word of God sets out for us. It's foolproof. It's promised. That's promised to us. Another thing, and you're familiar with this, I think sometimes we'll look at uh, Old Testament books like the book of Job and we'll think, ah, we'll kind of dismiss it as not applying to us. I, I think we're missing a great lesson, a great lesson if we don't consider it. Let me tell you why. And again, most of you know this, but if you look at the book of Job, Job was this great man. In fact, the word of God says that he was blameless, he was upright, and he feared God. But this caught my eye. And I don't think there's a lot of exaggeration going on in the Bible. It says, in fact, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Who else can that be said? I mean, that can't be said of me or, or maybe any of you. The greatest man among all the people in the East. That's something. Well, let's talk about who he was. He was wealthy. You know that. Seven sons, three daughters. He owned thousands of sheep 
cattle, donkeys, camels. However, God allowed Satan to afflict him. With the exception of killing him, he let Satan loose on him. All Job's children were killed, his servants, his livestock were either stolen or killed. Job was then struck with this tremendously painful disease, sores and boils all over his body. So basically, in a nutshell, Job was poor, he was sick, and he'd lost it all. Not to mention, he's married to this very, I'll say, unsupportive wife. She, she tells him, why don't you just curse God and kill yourself? Thanks, honey. That's, you know, I mean, really. Um, so let me ask you this right, right here. Let's stop it right now. Stop it right now. If you were to judge Job's life right here, what would you say? Probably, again, tragic, kind of a tragic, sad life. Like, oh, my gosh, what a fall this dude took. And I'd say you were right if the story ended there. If the story ended there. Job had lost his health, his family, his material possessions. But you know what he didn't lose? His faith. And his ability to trust God, even in the most horrible of situations, he did not lose that. Not even one bit. So I'm going to go there if you want. But I'm going to go to Job chapter 42 and read verses 10 through 17. Listen to this. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kizra, the third Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with the brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. Oh my, old and full of years. Let's look at a couple things. Job's prayer was the turning point for health and prosperity. Job's prayer was the turning point for health and prosperity. God gave him seven sons, three daughters to replace those that died. You know what I don't read? I don't read about his wife. So maybe God blessed him that way too and took her out. I don't know. But I, I, I don't read about it. I don't read about her. But anyway, with the animals, God gave him twice as many animals as he had before. God let him have many more years, enough to see his children's children to the fourth generation. Let me ask you this. If you were to judge Job's life now, how do you think, how would you say it turned out? So here's the theological truth. I'm just going to bust in with a theological truth right now. If you're a child of God, you will not suffer for no reason. I'm going to say that again. If you are a child of God, you will not suffer for no reason. With the exception of sin, which we bring on ourselves. But other than that, God will not allow you to suffer for no reason. 
let me say this, even though, even though the reasons may be hidden in the mystery of his divine purpose and may not be visible in this life, there is a reason. We must always trust him. We must always trust our Lord as a God who only does what's right, only does what's right. I believe Isaiah 55, 8 through 9 says this, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And see, what happens when we try to second-guess God or even get in that area? You know what we're doing? We are dethroning God. We're saying, get off the throne. I'm going to sit on it for a while and judge. Terrible place to be. Terrible. Get off the throne. God knows what he's doing. You know, I'll tell you this, but, and I admit this. I also realize there's times when we can fall into despair corporately. I mean, as Christians or Americans, there are times when I look at this great country that I grew up in and it's declining in ways I never thought possible. Honestly, never thought possible. When I see war breaking out in Europe and this lethargy of our current politicians, toward, or I guess in relationship to doing what's right, or just this basic lack of common sense that I've noticed in the last few years, I'll be honest, I get bummed and fearful. I honestly do. And not so much for me, like Robin and I talk about this, it's our kids and our grandkids. It's like, oh my Lord, what are they going to grow up in? But here's the thing, I remind myself of this, I don't think this is the end of the story, guys. I just do not think this is the end of the story. In 2 Chronicles 7, I, I read of God speaking to Solomon as he finishes the temple. And the Lord is speaking. I want you to know this. When God speaks to Solomon here, this is after Israel, in a large part, had been unfaithful to God in many ways. Let me, let me just remind you, I know you guys know, know this, but this is... This is like a chicken soup for the soul, if you will, right here. This is wonderful. L listen to this. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up heavens so there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That just washes over me in a wonderful way. Let me draw your attention to a couple things I think would be helpful. Verse 13, notice says this, when I cause, God says, when I cause these negative things to happen, whether that's drought, famine, sickness, it shows that all these negative circumstances have passed through his sovereign purview. And they actually have a reason. Can I say that? They actually have a reason. Similar to what happened in Job, but actually quite different. So here's my opinion. You can take this or leave it. This is my opinion. That some of these negative circumstances we are currently going through, privately or corporately, are designed 
to activate believers in Christ. I believe we're to be activated by this, not laying back. No, no, we're to be activated. We're, you know, we're, we got to humble ourselves. We got to seek God's face in prayer. We have to personally and corporately repent. That's not brought up a lot these days. We got to. I don't see any other way. Pray fast. That's a great way to start, but I'll, I'll leave that between you and the Lord. But I know that is the big prescription. So what I want to do, I want to transition my last thought and observations I head for home and conclude here. In these, and I'll say admittedly, admittedly difficult times, I see a couple of trends going on with Christians that they're disturbing for me. They're quite disturbing. One is there's these tenden uh, tendency, I guess, for believers uh, to say, well, since these times are so bad, I know Jesus is coming back really, really soon, like, you know, within the year and stuff like that. So there seems to be, in my opinion, this inclination for these people to withdraw from society and social responsibility and just kind of stay and wait for the rapture. Well, let me say this. Maybe these folks are right. Maybe Jesus is coming back then. Maybe. But maybe it's in the next nine months or maybe it's in the next 500 years. Last I checked, no one knows the day or the hour. I mean, that's what my Bible says. Uh, you know, I don't know whether it's a month, a year, a century, but we're not only to just occupy the earth, occupy where we are. We're to actively participate in the society around us actively participate, involve ourselves in all manner of good things. Now more than ever, we should become involved in the community. I don't care whether it's in local politics, socially or charitably, we got to be out there. We're to be out front sharing the good news, sharing the end of our story. Maybe other, other people would like to grab a little bit of that. We're not to lock ourselves in our house and sing Kumbaya. I know those are good, well-meaning Christians, but that is not the movie. That is, that is not what we're to do. And kind of lastly, in the same way, uh, we're not to be, dominant, to be dominated by despair. Despair is a killer. Yes, obviously, this world is intent on dismantling itself piece by piece. But the Word of God tells me that hope springs eternal. Hope springs eternal. And you know this, Rick and I used to joke about this years and years. We say we know who wins, but it is Christ wins. Can I tell you that nothing will prevent the marriage feast of the Lamb from happening? <laughs> there's like nothing, there's nothing going to get in the way of that. And Jesus specifically says in Matthew 16, listen to this, because this is a common error Christians make. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. In case you've never noticed, a gate is a defensive provision, not an offensive weapon. Many Christians misinterpret this verse to mean that hell will not overtake the church of the Christian. Not the case. That's not at all what Christ is saying. We are continually, as Christians, to be on the offense, kicking down the gates of hell. We're the ones on the offense because they cannot hold us back. Satan, his armies, the gates of hell cannot hold us back. We're to remain active and aggressive until the second Jesus comes to get us. Uh, well, praise God, praise God. 
To me, there's just a huge amount of difference between what, between what Jesus is telling us here and shutting ourselves up till God beams us up. I, 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 I can't make the two make sense there. But anyway, and lastly, we owe it to our children. We owe it to our grandchildren to keep our trajectory forward in good deeds and serving the Lord. In my opinion, our society right now, us, we suffer from what's called a short-term mentality, a short-term mentality. If we cannot experience immediate gratification in some way, we really don't want to become involved in it. It's sad but true. But can I say this? This is in radical contrast to earlier generations. Radical contrast. Let me conclude with this example. The Cologne Cathedral is possibly the greatest example of Gothic architecture in Europe. It's in Cologne, Germany. Rolf, you've probably seen it. It is awe-inspiring. But check this out. They began building it in 1248. It was not done till 1880. That's 632 years of building. You know, seriously. Now, now granted, okay, uh, there was some war in Europe a couple times. It halted the building. But one thing is true. I know this. The original architects, the original stonemasons knew good and well they would never see the end of that. They knew they would not be able to worship in the splendor of its beauty, but yet they considered the task worthwhile. That's incomprehensible and alien to a lot of us today. It's like, well, what? What is that about? See, we're children of instant gratification. I call it the microwave generation. Man, we want it now. A cell phone, Google, whatever, man. We want it now. It works against us. You see, it, it, there's a... There's a philosophical difference I'm going to try to explain. The difference between that generation and our generation is they saw themselves in the world they lived in embedded in something much bigger. Their cosmos, their cosmos itself was embedded in God. So that meant whatever temporary difficulty or bad circumstance it paled in comparison because there was something so much bigger there. They kept working on the Cologne Cathedral because they knew it was not about them. It was an obligation to the generations that came behind them. They kept building so future generations would have this glorious building to worship God in. They saw themselves not as the center of the universe, not at all, but part of a larger whole with a responsibility to those who would come after them. So the question is, should we simply despair about these dismal conditions of our society and the world? I believe the answer is this, that uh, there, quite honestly, there may be no hope that our culture will be different tomorrow next week, or even in my lifetime. But that does not mean we don't work here and now for future generations. We have an obligation to them. We have an obligation to do that. We work now because we're laying the foundation for our descendants that they'll be able to stand on or build on. We owe it to them. 
The New Testament Christian, if if you read the New Testament, it points out this life exactly. In fact, the Apostle Paul, uh, his, his whole trajectory was this. He was able to see that personal attacks or suffering in ministry, here's what he said, these are only light and momentary afflictions compared to the eternal glory that is to come. Dear friends, we all need this future orientation. We need this future orientation. This is not the end of the story. Whatever you're going, this is not the end of the story. Grab that and run with it. As I began today, I started out saying, you know, your life is determined by the end of the story. And can I say, dear friends, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you know well how the story ends. I'll repeat it again. It ends in victory. It ends in restoration. It ends in triumph, blessing, joy, and glory. Amen. Here's here's what I'd like to do right now. If I could have the prayer team come up for this reason, in that this story is a good one, but the caveat is if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, I would ask if there's anyone that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ or is even kind of not sure, come on up, let's seal the deal. Let's seal the deal today. However, if you do know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I find myself in this category, but the burden and and the weight of this life is getting to you and you're despairing, come on up to pray. And like I say, maybe we can remove a few of those rocks from your backpack. So come on up, come on up. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.